Our passage this morning comes from Colossians chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 15 and we'll go through chapter 4, verse 6. Let's read that together this morning. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since you as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. God, we we recognize that your word is our ultimate authority. And so this morning we submit ourselves to it. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us align our lives with what the word would have us to do, the way that it would have us to live, the posture of our hearts, would very much line up with what you say in your word, God. Pray that you would be with Kevin, uh, that he would be an instrument of truth as he brings this word to us this morning. God, Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Stephen. Last week I had a call from a pastor of a church in another city, and in the course of the conversation, he told me that recently he has locked horns with another pastor on staff that they have gotten to this conflict that the other guy is being completely unreasonable um, and that he is experiencing a whole lot of sleepless nights over this conflict with a co-worker. And he said, just to be honest, it's made it where I hate coming to work and I'm considering floating my resume, trying to find another job in another church somewhere else. Not long before that, I had a conversation with a guy who is in his mid-30s and he's married. And in that conversation, he said, you know, 
He said, my wife and I, we've got these young kids at home. We've been married for 10 or 12 years at this point. The honeymoon's kind of over. These kids are wearing us out. He said, I think we're tired. And if I'm really honest, I think we're a little bit tired of each other. And I'm just not sure if our marriage is going to make it. Not long before that, I had a conversation with a guy who was talking about his teenage son, and he said he has just been incredibly rebellious, and I have had so many sleepless nights over the behavior of my son, and I'm not sure what to do about this situation. I called a a friend of mine who is a professional counselor in another city this past week, and I asked him this question, when someone comes to see you, when your clients come to see you, what percentage of those clients would you say come in and talk to you because they are having a relational conflict of some kind? And he thought about the question and said, in my case, I would say 100%. He said, and it's not always the primary case. He said, although the majority who come in do so because it is the primary reason they are there. He said, but at some point, even if it's secondary, they will mention some kind of relational conflict that they are having in their lives. His answer did not surprise me at all. Uh, Relational conflict is the number one issue The number one problem that we will face in life, you will have more sleepless nights over that than any other problem, including financial issues and health issues, which are big problems. Relational conflict is a big deal. The passage that Stephen read earlier addresses this very thing in our lives. It's one of the things I love about the Bible. The Bible not only answers the really big questions of life. Why am I here? Where did I come from? Where am I going? It not only answers those eternal questions as well. It answers the questions about life in the here and now and how to deal with issues that we face in a lot of different slices of life, including relational conflict. The passage we're going to read today The Apostle Paul writes about how the gospel affects our relationships in life. If if you're new here with us today, we've been in a series on the book of Colossians. This is our fourth and final um, in this particular series. And just to recap, Paul was not um, familiar with, personally familiar with the church in Colossae. Uh, Through a friend, he knew about this church. And the reason he wrote this letter is because he heard about a false teaching that had come into the church. And the false teaching went something like this. Uh, Jesus is good. But Jesus is not enough. Uh, Jesus gets your, your foot in the door, but if you really want to be spiritual, if you really want to be accepted by God, then you need to add to it by following these rules or following these rituals or celebrating these, these certain holy festivals, and then you will be truly accepted by God. And so in the first half of Colossians, Paul talks about how Jesus is more than enough. How it's not Jesus plus all these other things, it's just Jesus. In the second half of Colossians, Paul talks about how this gospel reality in our lives changes us. And so last week we talked about how Paul Paul said, in light of the gospel, in light of this truth that in Christ we're fully accepted by God, in Christ we are unconditionally loved by God, in light of that, then put off your evil desires, put off your sinful nature, And put on things like kindness and compassion. You are a new creation in Christ, so live that out. 
This week, we are going to see how Paul extends that idea into how the gospel changes our relationships in life. And Paul, in this passage, lists four categories of people in our lives, of relationships that we have in life. If you've got your message map with you, this is on your message map. The first area that Paul talks about is how Jesus is more than enough to change my relationship with other believers. So go back up and look at verse 16. Here's what Paul wrote. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So the first thing that Paul does is he zeroes in on our relationship with other followers of Christ. And one of the things to keep in mind is that for Paul and really all of the early Christians, um, the word church had a different meaning than the way we think of it today. When we use the word church, we sometimes mean a building. Most often we refer to an event. Did you go to church this morning? Did you go to church last week? Hey, I think I'm going to church. Oh, church was great this morning. The music was really good and the sermon was so-so, but church was really good today. We talk about church like it's an event. That would have been a foreign concept to Paul. Church, church for Paul was nothing like going to, to some event, like going to a Taylor Swift concert or to see a Broadway musical. That, that, for Paul, if you describe church that way, he would have tilted his head at you like my dog tilts his head when I whistle. What are you talking about? That doesn't make sense. Paul described church as the gathering of believers. It is why he was able to say that you uh, are, when you come together, that you are to teach and admonish one another. That worship is about us coming together and teaching and admonishing one another with the message of Christ. Not my opinion, not your opinion. If I give you my opinion... I might lead you down a bad path. If I give you my opinion, I could be dead wrong. You could be dead wrong as well. So Paul here says to do so with the message of Christ. We would call that biblical truth. What we read in the Bible coming directly from the lips of Jesus. And then what we read in scripture that was written by those who heard from Jesus. And here he says to teach and admonish one another with the message of Christ. The picture here is, is as we gather for worship, we are teaching, and admonish is a strong word, warning one another not to go down bad paths. He says essentially that the way that we teach and admonish one another is through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. The psalms would refer to the old Jewish songbook. What we now call the Psalms, that was what they used in worship. The early Christians who were Jewish took that songbook and they adopted it in their worship. And then he says also to do this through hymns. Um, early Christian hymns were mainly used to teach. They were didactic in nature. So you had individuals coming from the Roman culture. They had no Christian background. Many of them were illiterate. So how did they learn theology? How did they learn these deep truths about the gospel? They would sing them in worship. 
If you want an example of an early Christian hymn, go to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul is talking about how our attitudes in Christ, uh, how our attitudes should reflect that of Christ. And Paul says that Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And that section is set apart. That was likely an early Christian hymn or at least a portion of an early Christian hymn. So the early church would sing psalms. They would sing these hymns. And then as well, they would sing songs from the Spirit. Those were, were more repetitive in nature. They were more spontaneous. Um, they addressed the heart uh, as much as the head. So through a variety of music, Paul says when you gather together to teach and warn one another, to teach and admonish one another. Here, here's what Paul was saying. And Eric said it very well earlier. When we go throughout our week, we forget the truths of the gospel. You and I, throughout our week, we, we begin to buy into these lies. Like Eric mentioned, God doesn't love me. I've messed up. You know, I need to earn God's favor. And so when we gather together for worship, here's what we're doing. We're reminding one another of the truths of the gospel. As we sing together, we're reminding one another of these eternal truths. It breaks my heart that so many people, so many committed Christians have determined that worship is just an option among many different options in their week. That, that you know, I'll go to worship, maybe I won't go to worship. Paul here is saying, you and I have an obligation to one another to gather together. And when we sing and you sing and I see you singing and you see me singing, we are reminding one another of the gospel. That, that, that there is this obligation that we have to, through worship, teach and admonish one another. So the first area he addresses is how we deal with other believers. Secondly, he addresses how Jesus is more than enough to change my relationship with my family. Okay, look at verse 18. Paul wrote, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Okay, so we will look at the context of these in just a minute. Paul here begins by addressing the area where it is hardest to live out the gospel. And that is in the home. We are good at putting up a facade out in public, especially when you come to church. You put on a good facade. You put on your smile. You're nice to everyone. You're kind. Even if in the car on the way to church, you were yelling and screaming at one another, you get to church, you pull out, you pull into the parking lot, you get out of your car, and what happens? You put on the smile, you know, you know you're supposed to be kind and compassionate, you're supposed to love all God's children, even the ones in the car that you were screaming at earlier. So you're, you know, you put on the smile, you go to class, you know, you walk your children to class. Why are you crying, little Johnny? <laughs> you know, mommy wasn't that loud, daddy wasn't that loud as we yelled. At home, the facade comes down. At home, we are our real selves. And so Paul here says that in the home, it is imperative that the gospel 
plays out in our lives. Paul mentions two types of relationships. The first is the marriage relationship. Paul wrote, wives submit to your husbands. Husbands love your wives. Now, I get it. Our culture bristles at this statement, especially the first one. Wives submit to your husbands. There may even be some of you, and you sort of recoil at the idea of a wife submitting to her husband. You know, at best, you get a picture of Leave It to Beaver, you know, and June Cleaver cleaning house all day in her pearls and her dress. You know, as Ward goes off to work, she has dinner ready. When he comes home, she hands him the newspaper. She serves him. You know, that, that's sort of the at-best picture. The at-worst picture is of some domineering husband, you know, with a wife who is meek and submissive and just a doormat. That is not the message that Paul was conveying here. You have to keep in mind that Paul spent a good bit of his time teaching and writing about the fact that in Christ, we are all equal, Jew and Gentile. Rich and poor, uh, male and female, slave or free. And because Paul taught this truth, because the other Christian leaders taught that in Christ we are all equal, at the foot of the cross, the, the the playing field is completely level. Because Paul taught that, that we all have equal worth in Christ, rumors began to circulate throughout the Roman Empire that the main goal of Christians was to turn the social order upside down. That in this case, women should be given the same rights as men. In the home and in public and in every other place, that women should have those same rights. And so part of Paul's message here to the church at Colossae was, look, I am not primarily interested in a political message. The point of the gospel, first and foremost, is not to turn a society upside down. It is to turn our lives upside down. It is to change our hearts, not to change a culture. Although it changes a culture, the primary focus of the gospel is our relationship with God. And so the first reason he gives this is to, is to reemphasize the point of the gospel. The second thing here is that Paul is saying wives and husbands... The gospel should so change your lives that you are willing to sacrifice your own needs to meet the needs of your spouse. So wives, submit to your husband's leadership because his greatest need is respect. Even more than love, his greatest need is respect. And so show him that respect. Even when you disagree, even when there are times you're not really sure, show him that respect. And then Paul says to husbands, love your wives. Keep in mind how radical this was in the Roman world, where women were considered to be the property of men. Wives were the property of their husbands. Daughters were the property of their fathers until they were given away in marriage. They were not considered to be any more valuable than a piece of property. Maybe slightly more, but but about like property. And think about how you treat your property. You don't, you don't love your stuff. You may say you do. I, you may say, I love my new car. Well, you love your new car until the transmission drops out. Then you no longer love your car. You love it as long as it serves your needs, but you don't love it 
if it's not serving your needs. Paul here is saying, love with agape love your spouse. This was countercultural in how the Romans approached their marriages. Paul to the Ephesian church expanded upon this idea. And he said, husbands, love your wives as you love your own body. No one hates their own body. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave his life for the church. In other words, love your wives with a sacrificial kind of love. I don't know too many women who would say, well, I'm not going to submit to a guy who acts like that, who loves me so much that he is willing to sacrifice his needs for me. Most women would say, I'll happily submit to a guy who does that. I'll happily show respect to a guy who loves me in that way. That is what Paul is saying here. Let the gospel so become a reality in your life that you're more concerned about the needs of your spouse than your own needs. The second relationship that he addresses is the parent-child relationship. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Paul here is saying, look, there is a natural order of things. God has given two children parents. And, and for parents to parent in the way that they should parent, children should obey those parents. And notice that Paul does not give a qualifier here. He doesn't say, well, only if they're Christians do you obey. I mean, you may be a teenager and you say, well, I would obey my parents, but they're, they're not even believers. They don't go to church. They don't follow Christ. Paul does not give that exception here. And in fact, I would say that, that Paul would say to you, unless what they're telling to you to do is, is not biblical, you know, and doing your homework does not violate Scripture in any way, unless what they're telling you to do is not biblical, then you are to obey your parents. And if they are not believers and they see you obeying them, what will prove to them more that the gospel has become a reality in your life? You have parents that aren't believers, and you clean your room the first time you're asked? It may just shock them so much that they say, well, I, we're going to church. This gospel deal is real. This is the first time he's ever cleaned his room. Hell, man, this whole church thing has changed him. Let's go see what this is all about. Paul here says, look, children, obey your parents. And then the message to fathers is this. Do not embitter your children. We could broaden that and say, the message to parents is do not embitter your children. Don't nag or overcorrect. Do, do not become unreasonable in your discipline. The goal of parenting is to shepherd a heart, not to create a perfect child who always outwardly does everything that you ask them to do. If that is what you want, if you're after a child who outwardly does exactly what you want them to do all the time, go and buy a robot because that's what you're, that's what you're asking for. The goal is to shepherd a heart that, that is inclined towards the gospel. And so that's what Paul is saying here. Don't be harsh. Be overly critical. Discipline out of love. And that will demonstrate the gospel uh, is a reality in your life. Okay, number three. Jesus is more than enough to change my relationship with my coworkers. So go back to verse 22. 
Paul wrote, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. And then skip down to verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you have a master in heaven. Now again, just to be clear, Paul was not approving of the social institution called slavery. In the Roman Empire, that was such a big deal. More than half of the residents of the Roman Empire were slaves. When the Romans would conquer a land, they would bring people back. Those individuals would serve as slaves. If you've ever seen the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe, one of my top ten, by the way, the gladiators in that movie, they're slaves. Now, they go to an arena, they go to the Colosseum, they fight one another. A lot of people come and cheer for those slaves. But at the end of the day, they're just slaves. It was very common in the Roman Empire. And once again, Paul and the other Christian leaders were accused of trying to overturn the system of slavery. They said, in Christ, we're all equal. Male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave or free. And so rumors began to circulate that the primary point of Christianity was to overturn the social system. What Paul does here is that he attacks the system of slavery in kind of a backdoor way, in a very subtle manner, by undercutting the beliefs about slaves. He says that slaves are to obey their masters even when their masters are not watching them. You see, in that day, they viewed slaves as property. Just, just do what you're told to do, nothing more, nothing less. Much like a tractor on a farm. What's the tractor do? Just whatever the driver orders it to do. If the driver parks the tractor and goes inside, the tractor doesn't suddenly get out there and start farming. Because it's just a piece of property. Here, Paul is saying to the slaves that you need to work your hardest even when your master is not watching you. And by doing that, he is giving, he is assigning to the slaves the capacity to think and to make moral judgments. And if they are making moral judgments, that means they are people. He is assigning personhood to them. And if they have personhood, then slavery is morally wrong. What Paul does is, is he doesn't come out with guns blazing. Hey, you shouldn't do this. You, you know, slavery is wrong. You should Instead, he, he subtly undercuts it so that they get the message in a, in a, without just immediately putting up a barrier and rejecting Paul's words. The other thing that he does, because Paul is primarily concerned about the gospel taking root in people's hearts and lives, is he says to the slaves, if you are a follower of Christ, then you need to allow that gospel to so become a reality in your life that you will work hard even when your master's not watching you. If you want your master to see the gospel as reality, then don't just work hard when he sees you. Do it all the time as if you're working for the Lord. Then he says to masters who are followers of Christ, you have a responsibility as well, and that is to be fair, that is to be, not be overly harsh, because you have a master in heaven and you will be held accountable one day as well. The best modern day equivalency to this is the workplace. Paul here would say to those in the workplace, if you're an employee, 
Work hard, give it your best, even when your boss isn't watching. If you want to demonstrate the gospel in the workplace, don't just talk about Jesus. Don't just say, hey, I go to church. Don't just talk about it, but demonstrate it by your hard work. Secondly, he would say to employers, you have a master in heaven. You need to treat your employees the way that you would want to be treated. Be fair. Be right to them. If you want to demonstrate that the gospel is a reality in your life, then treat them with kindness and fairness. By the way, any company that operates that way, where employees are given an honest day's work and employers are treating their employees the way they want to be treated, any company that does that is going to be one of the most successful companies around. Okay, finally, Jesus says, uh, Paul says, Jesus is more than enough to change my relationship with unbelievers. Notice what he wrote. Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So one of the things to keep in mind is that in Colossae, as it was the case throughout the Roman Empire, Christians were in the distinct minority. Colossae may have had 50 Christians in the church. They met in someone's home or a couple of different homes. Colossae at the time had 25,000 residents, maybe 30,000 residents in the city. So a major question that was on their minds was when we walk outside the doors of our church gathering, we are confronted with unbelievers. Paul, how should we act towards outsiders? Paul here answers their question and he says, you should be wise towards outsiders and you should seize every opportunity to share the gospel, to share the grace of God with those individuals. And here's how you should do it. One, be full of grace. Make sure that your words are full of grace. Here's what that means. You and I should only be as offensive as the gospel is offensive. Here's what I mean by that. The gospel itself offends. The gospel says that you and I, apart from Christ, are completely lost, completely broken, that we cannot do anything to fix our situation. Uh, we cannot, in our own righteousness and our own good works, you know, somehow achieve heaven, a relationship with God, that, that we are completely lost outside of Christ. That message is offensive. There are people when you say that who will back up and go, wait a second, but I'm a good person. No, you're not. I mean, I, I know your mama says you are, but you're not according to scripture. You're, you're not. That message alone is offensive. You and I do not need to add to that offense. You know, people that walk around with the, the signs at football games or other sporting events with turn or burn and the placards and all that, that, it drives me insane. Why would you add offense to the gospel? Just full of grace, share the truths of the gospel. Be gentle in how you share the message of Christ. So the first thing is we should be uh, full of grace. The second thing is our conversation should be seasoned with salt. Salt is a flavor enhancer. I know your doctor says don't eat salt, you know, your high blood pressure and cholesterol and all of that. But let's just be honest. Sometimes you got to do it. You know, the food just is too bland without salt. Paul here is saying that, that your conversations 
should be flavorful. Don't just throw out Christian platitudes. It's one of the reasons that I'm not a big fan of memorizing some kind of evangelistic script where you just go through and you say the same thing to everyone. A conversation with someone about the gospel should be something like uh, that they want to sink their teeth into. And so it involves listening to them and then responding to their questions. So Paul here says, make sure it's full of grace. Make sure it's seasoned with salt. And then the last thing, make sure that you know how to answer everyone. This does not mean that you have to have every question to every Bible trivia, you know, question that's out there, every answer to every question that's out there. If somebody says, well, you know, I'd, <laughs> I'd become a follower of Christ, but I don't understand the Trinity. Explain the Trinity to me, you know, and then maybe I'll follow Christ. You don't have to know every single answer. But there is one question that you have to be able to answer. And that is, why do you follow Christ? Why do you follow Christ? Paul here is saying, be ready to give that answer to all who ask. Here's what Paul is saying in this passage. Sometimes we view the gospel, we view our relationship with God as the spiritual part of our life. And, and so we answer the question, what do, I, what do I do to be saved? How is it I can have this relationship with God? And that goes in the spiritual cubby. And we put that in this box that we call church or our spiritual life, our relationship with God. And we say, that's it. That's over there. It does not affect the rest of my life. And Paul here is saying, no, no, no. The gospel affects everything. It, 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 it is part of the DNA of every aspect of your life and changes everything, including how you and I relate to others. Let that be true in your life.